Radio. The Journey with Dave and Dodsey, an initiative of the Catholic Diocese of Wollongong and Pulse 94.1. It's now time for The Journey with Dodsey and Dave. G'day and welcome to The Journey on Pulse 94.1. I'm Dodsey. And I'm Dave. How are you, Dodsey? I tell you what, I'm a little disturbed. I think I heard a bit of crowing going on earlier. You definitely did, Dodsey. What a great game of footy. The Mighty Roosters, my team, they are premiers for 2013. I had a great time on Sunday watching the game. I was actually up in Western Sydney with Mm. one of my mates and... He's an ardent, manly supporter. We had so much fun. You could imagine when the game was going to and fro. But at the end of the game, oh yeah, it felt good. 11 years to the day since they won in 2002. So it was a great game to watch and I trust you enjoyed it too, mate. Yeah, I did, mate. And good on you. Well, look, I'd like to say we're in the period I like to call the tweens. And I don't mean kids aged 11 and 12, you know, between uh, that and teens. I mean, we're between the footy season and the cricket season, Dave. We're still about a month away from the first test at the Gabba, so, you know, what sport do we follow now? Well, the sport of kings, yeah, I know, the spring carnival's happening and the Melbourne Cup's only a few weeks away, but imagine having a bet, Dave, on the king of kings. I tell you what, forget an each-way bet, you're in a winner with Jesus. Yeah, can't lose on that one. Well, let's talk about our regular segments today on The Journey, Gospel Reflections with Father Richard Healy. Also, Sister Hilda from the Abbey, one of my favourites, Francine and Byron Parola with their marriage tips. We're also going to hear from Trish McCarthy and Pete Gilmore, a couple of Illawarra locals with tips for living the gospel and living well. They always have great things to say. Now, this one, this is the one we're all waiting for. I believe we have a real scoop of an interview as well, Dodsey. Mate, absolutely. One of the producers of our show who works for Bishop Peter Ingham, Daniel Hopper, was able to score a one-on-one interview with John L. Allen Jr. on his recent brief stopover in Australia. Now, for those of you who don't know who he is, John Allen is an American journalist based in Rome and the USA who specialises in news about the Catholic Church. And lots of people have been eagerly waiting to hear Daniel's interview. Not just here in the Illawarra, but right around the country. Lots of mainstream press weren't able to get an interview, but Dan Hopper was. Yeah, Dan did well on that one, Dodsey. Coming up first, we'll break open the Word of God with this week's Sunday Gospel Reflection with Father Richard Healy from St Paul's Parish, Camden. Sounds great. Let's get into it, Dave. Here's this week's Reflection on the Gospel. Today in the Gospel from Luke chapter 17, we hear the story of an encounter between Jesus and a group of ten lepers. Some of them are Jewish, and some of them are foreigners from the despised region of Samaria. We are probably at least vaguely familiar with the terrible situation of lepers in the time of Jesus. The fact that people who are normally bitter enemies decide to be companions indicates something of how desperate they have become. The law of Moses requires that lepers avoid contact with people who are well, so they tended to haunt the outskirts of towns and relied on charity to survive. This group has perhaps heard of the compassion and healing power of Jesus, so shout out to him for mercy, of course, from the proper distance. Jesus gives them a simple command, just as the prophet Elisha does to the leper Naaman in the second book of Kings chapter 5. In a test of obedience, the ten lepers are not healed straight away, only when they are on their journey to show themselves to the priests, who in Jewish law was the only one who could declare someone to be free of leprosy and able to return to society. But all ten are made clean and are declared able to live in the town and to be with their families again. All ten are made clean. 
but only one is grateful enough to return to Jesus to offer him thanks. The irony is that the one who returns is a foreigner, one of the despised Samaritans. The very name of the Jewish people reminds them to praise God because the word Judah in Hebrew means praise. Perhaps we also know in our heads that God is the giver of all things that we have, every breath that we take or note of music that we hear, every smile or hug that we receive, and a thousand things beyond are all good gifts of a generous God. How different would the world be if we were able to live in that generosity all the time? This is Father Richard Healy from St. Paul's in Camden. Grace and peace. You're listening to The Journey with Dave and Dodsey from the Catholic Diocese of Wollongong on cradio.org.au. Here's Sister Hilda with Wisdom from the Abbey. There's a true story that I actually saw in the newspapers when I was a child. It covered the visit of Pope John XXIII to the local Roman jail. The Pope went in there, and this was big time because in days gone by the Pope didn't leave his little enclave. There he was, the prisoners all gathered around him behind bars, the guards behind them, and that beautiful Pope started to talk to them. He talked to them about the love that God had for them. He talked about the love of friends, wives, children that were waiting for them. He talked about the love that they hadn't yet known that was waiting for them and encouraged them to get going on their life right now. Let it be the foundation stone for claiming the good things that were waiting for them. And then he blessed them and started to make his way out of the room. Just as he did that, all hell broke loose. One of the prisoners jumped up and down and screamed out, Holy Father, Holy Father, Holy Father! And the guards, as you might imagine, were trying to smack him down. The Pope said, no, 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 bring him over here. That poor man, he came to the bars and hung on to the bars. And with tears streaming down his face, he said, Holy Father, I'm a rapist, a murderer and a thief. All those things you just said, did, did you mean them for me too? And that beautiful Pope put his pudgy peasant hands through the bars and held the beaten face and just simply said to him my son I meant those words especially for you today and in the time to come may you too know a pair of loving hands that hold your face and assure you that that message of forgiveness and of a new start in life that's meant especially Especially for you. You're listening to The Journey on Pulse 94.1. Hey, Godsey, here's one for you. The Prayer Around the Cross. Friday the 25th of October, 7.30pm, St. Bridget's, Gwynville. An ecumenical opportunity to gather for prayer and reflection in the style of Taze. You contact Gabrielle Fogarty on 4232-2735 for more information. Sounds great, Dave. And now, as promised, it's time for part one of our interview with John L. Allen Jr., who's Senior Correspondent for the National Catholic Reporter and a Senior Vatican Analyst for CNN and National Public Radio in the USA. He also writes for the New York Times, but perhaps John is best known for his weekly column about the world of Catholicism called All Things Catholic, which appears in the print and online versions of the National Catholic Reporter. Dodsey, just to give our listeners an idea of just how big this guy is in the media world in Rome... Kenneth L. Woodward, 
former religion editor for Newsweek, wrote back in 2005, Outside of the North Korean government in Pyongyang, no bureaucracy is harder for a journalist to crack than the Vatican's, and no one does it better than John L. Allen Jr. In just three years, Allen has become the journalist other reporters, and not a few cardinals, look to for the inside story on how all the Pope's men direct the world's largest church. Mate, he is an amazing journalist, world-renowned writer and Vatican insider. And you can see why it was quite a coup for the Journey's producer, Dan Hopper, to score a one-on-one interview with John Allen while he was in Australia a couple of weeks back. Now, it's a great interview on John's role as a journalist in the Vatican and his thoughts on how Pope Francis has gone in his first six months of being the leader of 1.2 billion Catholics worldwide. So let's dive into part one right now. Well, I'm joined here today at the lovely Cathedral House here next to St Mary's Cathedral up in Sydney with John L. Allen Jr. First of all, John, welcome to Australia. Uh, Thank you for joining us on the journey today. It is a delight to join this journey with you. Just as a background for our listeners, John, you were born and raised in Kansas, USA. That is correct. And you went through Catholic primary and secondary education. Educated by the Capuchin Franciscans. That's right. And then you went on to get a bachelor's degree in philosophy and then a master's degree in religious studies. Um, My first question, John, is have you always had a strong faith? Uh, Have I always had a strong faith? Yes. Now, uh, is your follow-up question going to be, has covering the Vatican affected that faith in some way? Because that's what people usually ask me. Right. You know, there's there's this famous line from Monsignor Reginald Knox, right, the great English Catholic writer, uh, who said that if you want to sail safely on the bark of Peter, you would do well to stay away from the engine room. Mm. You know, the, the theory being that too much exposure to the humanity of Rome and, and watching the sausage being ground, you know, is somehow injurious to your faith. I have to say, I, I've had the exact opposite experience. Um, I suppose because I went to Rome as a journalist, mm. so the idea that there is humanity in the church and there's politics in the church, and so this was not a revelation to me, right? Um, what I found in Rome, however, uh, was that there's a great deal more than that. I mean, I, I found, first of all, if we're going to speak specifically about the Vatican, I have been nothing but edified by the, by the fact that the vast majority of people I have met uh, in, who were working in service to the Holy See um, – work in, under incredibly difficult conditions for very little in terms of material rewards and are motivated by a strong sense of idealism, by, by the, the, the notion of service to the universal church and service to the successor of Peter. Now, that doesn't mean they get everything right, obviously, and, and you know they would be the first to, to acknowledge it, but, but for the most part, I've been nothing but uh, impressed and edified by the spirit I find there. The other point is, that, you know, the Vatican is not the only game in town in Rome, right? It's also the, the privileged crossroads of the Catholic world. Uh, and for me, it's been a point of departure for getting to know the wider Catholic world. One of the things I do as a Vatican correspondent, of course, is I travel whenever the Pope travels. Mm. And, and just very briefly, I'll tell you a story. One of the early trips I made with John Paul II was to Ukraine. Of course, the, the, the cherished dream of John Paul was to go to Russia, but it became clear late in his papacy that was never going to happen, and Ukraine was the closest he was ever going to get, so this mm-hmm. meant a great deal to him. And I remember we were in Lviv in eastern Ukraine, which is where the Catholic population is concentrated, and he was doing this, this big open-air mass, for the, the kind of concluding event of the itinerary. There were two million people in this airfield, okay? And it had been raining all night, okay, and raining the next morning. Uh, and, you know, me being, you know, Mr. Hyper-Prepared American Reporter, I showed up with my laptop and my trip book and my background mm-hmm. materials. The only thing I didn't have, which I actually could have used that morning, was an umbrella. Right. Uh, and so I set off 
to try to buy one because there was this kind of bazaar they had set up at the back of the, the mass site. Well, they were selling everything, man. I mean, I could have bought a washer and dryer. <laughs> I could have had the, 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 the tires rotated on my car. I could have done anything. They were, of course, out of umbrellas. Finally, one Ukrainian cop gives me a poncho. And so now armed with this poncho, I'm trying to make my way back to the press tent. Okay, Out of the corner of my eye, I caught uh, an image of this. There was a young girl sort of by herself towards the back of this sea of humanity. Okay, On her knees in the mud and rain, just weeping. Okay. And so naturally, I was curious as to what was going on. So I, I, I approached her and waited for her to kind of collect herself. And then I asked her if she spoke either English or Italian, and she had some English. So mm-hmm. I asked her if she could explain. I said, I just noticed you're very emotional. Could you just explain what you're feeling? And she told me that her grandfather had been a Greek Catholic priest. Of course, the one of the Eastern Rite churches in union with Rome, their, their clergy are married. Right. Uh, and like most other Ukrainian Catholic priests of his generation, he had right. been arrested uh, in the Soviet period uh, in the 50s, sent to a gulag, and given a basic choice. And the choice was he could either renounce his Catholicism right. uh, and become an Orthodox priest, in which case they would let him go, or uh, he could refuse to do that and he would be killed. Uh, he had made the choice not to renounce his faith, and so he was killed in the gulags. And by the way, not with a simple bullet to the head. He was crucified upside down uh, and allowed to languish on the wall for days uh, of this gulag until he finally died. And this young woman told me that the reason she was crying is because she was imagining what must be in her grandfather's heart that day, looking down from heaven and seeing the Holy Father standing on Ukrainian soil. Now, you've got to understand, as you've already mentioned, I grew up in western Kansas in the 1970s, okay? My idea of suffering for the faith was eating fish sticks and macaroni and cheese on Fridays during (laughs) Lent, okay? What this brought home for me, in a way that no other experience possibly could, is that there is something so precious about this faith that when push comes to shove, ordinary people who never set out to be heroes will pay in blood rather than let it go. Okay, and, and that experience has sustained me through more sort of difficult patches in my own faith journey than you can possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. That is what the experience of covering the Pope, covering the Vatican, and cl- covering the global Catholic Church has done for me. Mm-hmm. So when you ask me, has this experience shaped my faith in any way? You bet it has, and not in the way in which people ordinarily expect. It has reinforced and deepened my faith in ways you could not possibly imagine. Wow, what a great story, John. Um, I'm interested in learning more about how you became a journalist, especially a journalist focusing on the Catholic Church. Listen, I'm a complete journalistic phony, okay? I did not go to journalism school, you know, never took a class. Like most people on this beat, you have to understand that in the English language, the world of full-time Vatican correspondents is extremely small. I mean, you know, on a good day, there are maybe 15 of us, okay. okay, 20. Statistically... You have a much better chance of playing professional basketball, okay, uh, as a kid growing up than than you do covering the Vatican. So everybody I know kind of backed into this. In my own case, uh, I uh, was working on a doctorate degree in Scripture. My my vision for myself was I wanted to be a Scripture scholar. Uh, I had just gotten married. My wife was having a hard time finding a job. So I told her, well, look, honey, I will take a part-time job just to kind of, like, buy us some time. Now, you're in your early 20s, and you've got a graduate degree in religion. What the hell kind of job are you actually going to get? Uh, and so the job I got was teaching religion at a Catholic high school in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. 
This high school, however, also had a very small journalism program. Uh, I remember during my interview, the principal asked me, do you have any background in journalism? Mm. To which my answer was, well, I'm, I read the paper. Like, well, that's good enough. You know, you're now running our journalism program. This was two weeks before school started. So I called up uh, the Los Angeles uh, Times okay. and the Los Angeles Daily News, uh, because the Daily News at that stage was still a going concern. It's, it's since folded. But in any event, I asked these two, you know, mainstream secular papers, right. can I come hang out for a day and, you know, just see how this works? And they were both very gracious. So the L.A. Times, I remember the next day I went to their 8 o'clock editorial meeting. Okay, And you know, we both know how editorial meetings and newspapers mm. work, right? So here you are at this table with all these like smart, well-informed, funny, cynical people, right? Mm. And they're sitting around deciding what the most interesting things going on in Los Angeles that day are. Then they're going out to get privileged front row access to it. Mm. And then they're coming back and writing it up. And they get paid right. to do this, okay? And that moment was like a Kairos mm. right moment for me. You know, I said, dear God, I don't want to teach this. I want to do it. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I started freelancing for some different outfits. And before very long, uh, the National Catholic Reporter in the States uh, offered me a job, and here we are. Mm. You, you mentioned the National Catholic Reporter, which you started working for in 1997. And then in 99, they sent you over to Italy to set up their Rome office, uh, how did that come about? Uh, well, basically speaking, at the time, we're, we're now talking about the late 90s, right? Right. And like every other media organization in the world, the National Catholic Reporter was convinced that John Paul was going to drop dead mm -hmm. any day. Okay. Now, of course, he proceeded to live basically another decade. Uh, but, uh, you know, they didn't want to be caught with their pants down, you know, when the moment came. And, and so, you know, they were looking for somebody in Rome and not having a lot of luck. Mm. Meanwhile, they had me, they had hired me to come work uh, in their newsroom in Kansas City as their opinion editor. Uh, and two things about that became clear. One, they liked the work I was doing. Uh, and two, it was clear I was not going to last as an editor. Uh -huh. <clears throat> because in my view, being an editor is basically being a bureaucrat. You go to meetings, you manage personnel, you manage budgets, and these are all very important things, but it's not what I got in the business to do. Uh, I wanted to be out in the field doing my own stuff, and so they knew they had to turn me loose someplace. Uh, and so eventually these two things intersect, and they said, well, we want somebody in Rome, but we're not having any luck finding anybody there. Meanwhile, we've got this guy, uh, and we want to keep him in the stable, but we know we have to put him into the field. Let's send him over to Rome and see what happens. Uh, now, listen, this was not the classic, you know, sort of trajectory for becoming a Vatican correspondent. Right. I mean, as I like to tell people, among other things, I didn't know a lick of Italian. Mm. When I got to Rome, my Italian was so bad, I thought prego was a kind of spaghetti sauce, okay? <laughs> so, you know, I had to learn the language. I had to learn the culture. But in, but in many ways, I think this is very helpful because I, I compare it to experiences my colleagues have had, Okay. For example, when the New York Times rotates a new Rome correspondent in, they inherit an apartment, uh, they inherit a what we call in the trade a fixer, meaning a, a local Italian who's going to help them with the language and help them set up appointments and all of that stuff. Mm. They inherit a system, okay? So, so there are lots of built-in, they're playing with a net, mm. in other words, okay? In my case, I had none of that. I had to build everything from the ground up which was enormously, I mean, I was young and dumb. I didn't know it was impossible, okay? But what it meant was I had to master the language. I had to master the systems. Mm. I had to get to know everyone all on my own. Uh, and on the other side of that, I was a much better reporter because of it. I mean, it was daunting at the beginning, 
but I came out of it. I mean, I became a seasoned hand much more quickly than most people do. It's the journey on Pulse 94.1. Wow, what an amazing guy John Allen is, Dave. And how gracious is he giving Daniel his time for the interview? Yeah, spot on with that one, Dodsey. I reckon it would be pretty daunting interviewing one of the most renowned and trusted interviewers and also reporters in the world. Mm. You think about it, John gave a really good insight into how he came to be a journalist and how that has affected his faith. You're listening to The Journey on cradio.org.au. If you've just tuned in, where have you been? Oh, easy up, Dodds. He settled down, mate. They're probably Roosters fans still celebrating, and I don't blame them. Anyway, seriously, if you've just joined us, you're just in time to hear part two of the interview that our producer Dan Hopper did with world-renowned Vatican reporter John L. Allen Jr. Now, part one was brilliant, and I can't wait to hear part two of the interview where Dan asks John all about Pope Francis. John, another thing we discussed before we began today was how you divide your time. And you were telling me how you spend a third of your year in Rome, a third back home in the US, and a third travelling around the world with the Pope. Um, I was wondering, what have been your interactions with Pope Francis so far? Well, I mean, of course, you know the story, uh, Mm. that we've had one international trip with Francis. It was his trip to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil for World Youth Day, the 22nd to the 28th of July. Uh, I came on the beat during the late John Paul years, okay? Now, guys who have been around a long time, you know, whose memories stretch back to 1978, you know, when John Paul was elected, will tell stories about how he used to interact with the media on the plane. I mean, the story is that in the old days, when John Paul was, was you know, still full of spit and vinegar, uh, you know, he would come back to the press compartment without any of his, you know, his retinue. I mean, it would just be him, Right. And he would come back and he would spend a half hour with the English speakers and he would spend a half hour with the German speakers and a half hour with the Spanish speakers, right. you know, all in, in the, do the same for the French and the Italians and the Poles. And, and he would do it all in, in their language, okay? Uh, totally unfiltered, totally unscripted, uh, all on the record, okay? Uh, and, and, I mean, if you go back, you can find transcripts of this stuff. It was remarkable. Mm-hmm. Now, all of that was over by the time I came on the beat, okay? Because by the late 90s, uh, you know, John Paul's health, uh, although he was still, the, the lights were certainly all on, um, just the physical demands yeah, yeah. of all of that were no longer manageable. So he didn't do that. So, you know, our exposure was in, very limited. Uh, typically, uh-huh. what would happen on the John Paul trips uh, is that on the outbound flight, you know, he would come back to the press compartment and give a little what the Italians would call a fervorino, a, a little sort of talk, a kind of exhortation, you know, very brief at the beginning. Then at the end, each of us individually would be brought up and we would sit down next to him and, you know, you'd have a minute or a couple minutes. Um, and it wasn't, this was not hard-hitting journalism, okay? These were just sort of personal exchanges. Uh, during the Benedict years, uh, Benedict was a different personality, uh, in the way it would work is that the papal spokesperson would collect questions, uh, and, uh, in advance, like 72 hours before departure, uh, and then he would pick two or three questions, which right. he would then give to the Pope, and the Pope would give his answers, which he had obviously had a chance to think out, and that was basically it, and those, those were, they were often useful, but it was not a press conference, you okay, know, in, yeah. in the traditional sense of the term. So, you know, we really didn't know quite what to expect with Francis. I mean, the book on him from Argentina, you know, is that he was very media-averse. I mean, he was the Archbishop of Buenos Aires for 15 years, and he gave basically five interviews. Mm, That's right. Uh, Didn't like doing it, okay? So we we didn't know what to expect. So on the outbound flight to Rio, 
what happens is he comes back and says basically, <laughs> in light of subsequent experience, very ironic, he comes back and says to us, I don't give interviews. I, I don't like giving interviews. Um, but I do want to get to know you. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to stand here and say hello to all of you individually. So he stood in the, the press compartment for basically two hours. Okay, And each of us had an opportunity to go up and have you know five minutes of FaceTime with him. Right. I pointed out, by the way, that uh, immediately after his election, I had gone down to Buenos Aires to do some reporting, and I'd had a lovely chat with his sister, Maria Elena. So I told him mm-hmm. how much I liked his sister, and he, he looked at me and says, yeah, she, she likes to talk. And I said, yeah, I know, and believe me, all of us in the press corps are grateful for it. Uh, anyway, and we thought that was it. Okay, We didn't expect anything on the return. Then, right. as we're sitting in the departure lounge at the airport in Rio, after what had been a very eventful week, in Rio de Janeiro, okay, uh, news rich, okay, seven right. days on the ground. Um, in the departure lounge, we start to get word he's going to come back and do something else with us on the flight okay. back, okay. Uh, and still at that stage, we didn't know quite what that meant, okay. But after we t- after the takeoff, basically, Father Lombardi, who's the Vatican spokesperson, comes back and says, "Look." Uh, the Pope has decided that um, he's going to come back and take questions from you. Um, and you, there's no controls, no limits, nothing is off the table. Uh, he's just going to come back. Why don't you, in language group, decide, you know, for each language group, who's going to ask the questions? I don't need to know what they are. Mm. You know, just decide who's going to pop them. So what question did you ask? Uh, I actually asked the question that elicited the who am I to judge line oh, about right. gays. Um, because my question actually was about a one of the Pope's uh, appointments that's proved to be controversial. He appointed an Italian Monsignor by the name of Battista Ricca uh, to be his prelate to the Vatican Bank, the Institute for the Works of Religion. And Monsignor Ricca has been accused in some of the Italian media uh, of having uh, engaged uh, in some uh, basically homosexual affairs while he was a Vatican diplomat in Uruguay in the late 90s. Uh, and some have raised the question of whether or not the Pope was going to have to backtrack in the appointment right. and all of that. So my question was actually about Rika, and he answered the question, which in, a, in its own uh, is kind of remarkable, because I, I cannot think of a prior time in which there had been a controversy about a papal appointment in which there was alleged misconduct, in which someone actually was able to ask the mm-hmm. Pope about it, and he gave a direct answer, and his answer was, look, we looked into this, there's nothing to it. Okay, so that was his answer, Enrique. But then he went on to give a, a kind of broader take on his attitude towards uh, homosexuals in general. Uh, and of course, as we all know by now, uh, his point was that when I meet a gay person, what I ask myself is, who am I to judge? Uh, and that, of course, became the soundbite from that flight. You know what I like to say about that flight, by the way? Uh, Alitalia Flight 4001 from Rio de Janeiro to Rome in many ways was nothing to write home about. The seats were uncomfortable, the food was mediocre, but I will give it this, the in-flight entertainment was (laughs) spectacular. (laughs) Look, John, it's been such a pleasure having you with us today on the journey, and I know you're only in the country for 24 hours giving a lecture at the Australian Catholic University on the Francis Effect, looking at the first six months of Pope Francis's papacy. Um, For our listeners today, can you give a quick summary on how you think the Pope's gone in his first six months? Well, you know, Francis, another thing he said during that plane flight uh, is he said, um, to be honest, I haven't done very much yet. 
Uh, and of course, what he meant by that is he knows he was elected on a reform mandate. He knows that the under, other 114 cardinals who elected him, including Australia's own uh, Cardinal George Pell of Sydney, uh, you know, elected him uh, in part to fix what are perceived to be some pretty serious management difficulties uh, in the Vatican. Right. Uh, and at the structural level, you know, Francis has set up some commissions to study things. Uh, he set up a Council of Eight Cardinals, which, of course, includes Cardinal Pell, uh, to advise him on reform. He set up a commission to study the Vatican Bank. He set up a commission to study the economic and administrative structures of the Holy See. Um, but he hasn't actually implemented mm. much uh, by way of reform. And so one takeaway would be, you know, uh, at, at the six-month mark, we have a papacy that, uh, that that hasn't accomplished very much. But the truth of it is, I think in our gut, all of us know that's the wrong take mm. on these first six months. Because the truth of it is, what he has accomplished over these six months is that he has changed the public conversation mm. about the Catholic Church. I mean, you and I both know as media people that on March 12, 2013, the day before he was elected, the dominant narratives in the global media and the dominant narratives at the grassroots, ordinary people about the Catholic Church, were child sexual abuse scandals, meltdowns in Rome, bruising political fights. And, of course, none of those things have gone away. I mean, they're, they're, they're still there uh, as storylines. But we also know that is not what mm -hmm. people are talking about with regard to the Catholic Church anymore. What they're talking about now uh, is charismatic pope takes the world by storm. You know, this, this humble, simple, gracious smart, wildly attractive, you know, new man at the top uh, who is reintroducing a jaded world to what the Catholic Church actually wants to talk about. I mean, that's the difference. Six months ago, the agenda in terms of public conversation about, uh, about Catholicism uh, was being set by people who were hostile to the Church. Today, the public agenda for discussion of the Catholic Church is being set by the Pope himself. Mm. And if that is not a revolution, I'm not sure I've ever seen one. Oh, John, I couldn't agree with you more. And what a perfect note to end the interview on. Look, thank you so much for all the time you've given us today. I know how hectic your schedule is, but it's been wonderful speaking to you and getting an insight into what it's like to be a journalist in the Vatican and especially your insights on Pope Francis. Thank you for joining us today on The Journey on Pulse 94.1. Glad to do it. It's been a blast. It's the journey on Pulse 94.1. What a great interview, Dodsey. Nice scoop there, Dan Hopper. I loved how John spoke about the different approaches that the last three popes have taken in their interactions with the media. They're all been quite different, especially Pope Francis in him surprising all of the reporters on the plane when they were flying back from World Youth Day this year. It's all about openness and open dialogue. Yeah, it's great. It's fascinating stuff, Dave. And I loved, particularly, his analysis of Pope Francis' first six months as Pope. And I loved how he said that Pope Francis is a humble, simple, gracious, smart, wildly attractive new man at the top. And he's reintroducing a jaded world to what the Catholic Church actually wants to talk about. Go figure. Dan's interview with John actually goes for close to half an hour, but we couldn't play it in its entirety on today's show. However, if you'd like to listen to the rest of the interview then go to our website to have a listen. And that's at www.radio.dow.org.au. You're listening to The Journey with Dave and Dodsey from the Catholic Diocese of Wollongong on cradio.org.au. And now it's time for Milk and Honey with Trish McCarthy. Have you ever noticed how much Jesus loved food? 
Back in the good old days, mealtimes were not a chore like they can be today. They were, and I believe still are, valuable and powerful times of connection. Food brings people together. Jesus ate with sinners, Pharisees, his disciples at the Last Supper, and even after his resurrection. He often used food in his parables, the seed and the sower, the vine and the branches, as well as his miracles, like feeding the 5,000. Feeding ourselves, both physically and spiritually, is a basic, fundamental skill of life. It strengthens us and sustains us. Somewhere along the line, though, this fundamental aspect of who we are has become an inconvenience. Get it over with so we can get on with life. I encourage you today to look at it from a different perspective. Food, both divine and earthly, is our life source. It's where we get our strength and energy to do what's required of us and fulfil our responsibilities and commitments. As I mentioned earlier, it's a valuable time of connection with ourselves and others. If your kids are big enough, i.e. they can walk and talk, invite them to help and contribute in the process. Chop the veggies and spend some special time with mum. Turn the sausages and have a laugh with dad. Take the opportunities to talk with those you live with about life, your day, or affirm them around you. Learn to love cooking and creating. Some of my favourite memories are being in the kitchen with mum and sitting down as a family to enjoy what we created together. Feed yourself well and be open to God's healing and presence in the moment. And now with their tips for vibrant marriages and family life, here's Byron and Francine Parola with Smart Loving. Hi, we're Francine and Byron Parola from smartloving.org. We're now in the fourth week of a five-part series on the art of apology. In part one, we talked about the importance of admitting your error by accepting responsibility without excuses. Part two addressed the need to acknowledge the harm caused by our actions by detailing the specific ways the other person has been negatively affected. Part three, we talked about expressing sincere sorrow. And today, we wish to address the fourth element of the art of apology, requesting forgiveness. For many people, this is actually the hardest part of an apology because it requires complete vulnerability and surrender of all power to the offended person. When we ask for forgiveness, we are really asking for the other person to let us back into their hearts. If you've done all the other parts of the apology process and have a genuine sorrow, the request for forgiveness is a natural next step. But forgiveness can never be demanded and the response must always be respected, even if it is to withhold forgiveness at this time or even indefinitely. For the offended person, Granting forgiveness can be challenging, especially if the offences are very significant. However, we need to remember that Christ calls us to forgive each other, not just for the offender's sake, but also for our own sake. When we hold on to our own hurt and resentment, we are allowing that wound to eat us alive. It steals our joy and darkens our days. Forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves as much as something we give to the other person. We're Francine and Byron Parola. For more tips and information about relationships, visit smartloving.org and type apology into the search box. You're listening to The Journey on cradio.org.au. I just want to mention Bridge for Peace Healing Ministries. Now, Bridge for Peace are an ecumenical healing ministry from the US and they're travelling all around Australia holding healing services. And guess what? They're coming to our very own backyard. They'll be holding a healing service at St Columcules Primary School at 119 Princess Highway, Coromel. That's all happening on Saturday the 19th of October between 1 and 5pm. Now, if you want to get along to that, you can contact either Jane or Brad. They're on 4267 3175 or a mobile number 
0401-220-610. It's The Journey on Pulse 94.1. Coming up, Pete Gilmore with Living the Gospel. Now let's live the gospel with Pete Gilmore. A couple of years ago, I was having a birthday party and I decided to make it a costume party and the theme was a good one. When I grow up, I want to be... So in my head, I envisioned a party full of astronauts, marine biologists, cowboys, police and superheroes. Well, a friend of mine jokingly said, I'm going to come dressed up as you and I'm going to get everyone else to as well. To say I was instantly embarrassed at the thought would be an understatement. I couldn't think of anything worse. Turning up at a party with everyone dressed like me. What a nightmare. But wait a second. Embarrassment aside, can you imagine if you went to the party and found everyone dressed like you? That they would value and honour you such that they would come as you? When we talk about Jesus and his life and his sacrifice, we often forget that Jesus came to the party dressed like us. As one of us, his humanity affirms our humanity. His dignity confirms our dignity. You are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image and likeness of our God. You are valued and prized. Never, ever forget that. God bless. Welcome back to The Journey on Pulse 94.1. Great message again from Pete Gilmore. Mm. Amazing how he can take the example of a costume party and turn it into a right-between-the-eyes message of God's love for us. <laughs> I love that about Pete's segment. Just want to let you know about Anti-Poverty Week coming up. There's a great talk from Dr. John Falzon. He's the National CEO of the St. Vincent de Paul Society. It's going to be held on Wednesday, the 16th of October, 11.15am up until 1.30pm. Wollongong City Library is the place to be, 41 Burelli Street, Wollongong. Dr. John will be speaking on marginalisation and inequality in Australia. Now, there's only 50 places available, so make sure you register by ringing Veronica Marksell on 4627-9299. Well, that's the end of another show, Dave. Probably our best show yet. We're hoping to have more interviews like the John L. Allen Jr. interview as we continue to move forward on the journey each week. A big thank you to Selena Hashem and Bernard Tutanji from the Archdiocese of Sydney for all their help in securing the interview with John. Now, speaking about interviews, I'm about to sit down and have a chat with Bridge for Pieces, Annette and Ed Eckhart, as I mentioned earlier. And thanks also to all of our regular contributors, Sister Hilda, Pete Gilmore, Trish McCarthy and the Parolas. Dave, we've got another great big show planned for next week. And it's going to be hard to top this week, but we'll do our best. Yeah, Dodsy, just remember, listeners, Sundays, 11am up until midday. Also repeated 10pm till 11pm on Wednesdays on Pulse 94.1. You can also live stream pulse941.com.au or listen to past shows at www.radio.dow.org.au. And remember, have have yourselves a great week. The Journey is produced by the Catholic Diocese of Wollongong in cooperation with Pulse 94.1 and edited by Jude Hennessy and Daniel Hopper from the Office of the Bishop. You have been listening to The Journey with Dave and Dodsey on cradio.org.au. You can listen into The Journey in Wollongong by tuning in to Pulse 94.1 on Sundays from 11am to 12pm or Wednesdays from 10 to 11pm. And you can tune in from anywhere else in the world through the Pulse 94.1 website or streaming on Cradio on Sundays from 8 to 9 p.m. 
To find all the episodes of The Journey and for more shows, talks and interviews, visit cradio.org.au.